Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hello, everybody. Today, Alan and I are going to be talking about Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. And this is sometimes known as the parable of the wicked tenants. Um, And I thought we'd just start with that today and kind of some of the assumptions made on this parable. And I picked this up from just an online study. But this is what the online study says about this. The theological theme, they say, is... Judgment comes on those who reject God's commands, God's warnings, and God's son. So I thought maybe I would have Alan, (laughs) he's smiling at me. I I think I'll have him start to address this uh, interesting and assumed way to read this parable. Well, I will say, I think for most of us, it's almost impossible to resist the temptation to read the parable that way because uh, so many of the images lend themselves to... Uh, understanding it that way Um, and you know the typical understanding is that the landlord is God the vineyard is Israel the tenants are the Jewish leaders the servants are the prophets the son is Jesus and you know um, the image of Israel as a vineyard is one that has Hebrew Bible roots the image of the servants uh, the prophets as servants of God also as well and and the, the the story of the way in which the servant the prophets were mistreated you know it, it was one that was uh, well known in Jesus day um, and of course for us you know here the son is killed outside the vineyard so you know that it just there's so much about it that lends itself to that interpretation um, and I think in in the context of Matthew's gospel that's probably not too far off because if you look at the end of the passage you have this dialogue where Jesus says you know the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and he says um, essentially uh, it's interesting he has he has the Jewish leaders pronounce their own judgment he asked, he doesn't say what's going to happen to those tenant farmers he says what will happen and they pronounce the judgment you know the, the the owner of the vineyard will come and kill them and give the vineyard to other people and so Jesus says well you've said it well because the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a people ethnoi Gentiles is the implication who will produce its fruit and and I think in Matthew's context that may very well be the way Matthew read it but I think we have to look deeper at the way Jesus intended the parable and I think and this is one of the this is one of the I think one of the key points in trying to understand gospel readings gospel text is you know we we can look at the situation of Matthew's gospel and what Matthew may have been trying to communicate but we also need to look at the situation in Jesus ministry and what Jesus may have been trying to communicate and I think I think for me the question would be who's wicked in this parable is it the tenant farmers or is it the owner of the vineyard? 
I think that's a good point. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about when I looked at even the title is we tend to read it this way because this is the title that's given on the top of our Bibles, and that in, kind of self-imposes an idea on it. But I, I think you're right. This digger, deeper question about who really is it at fault here maybe mm-hmm. maybe the bigger question. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in light of the social and economic situation of the day, um, that whole reading doesn't really work out too well. Um, the, the landlord, the owner of the vineyard, is an absentee landlord. And God as an absentee landlord is not good theology at all. But even worse than that, if this owner of the vineyard is supposed to represent God, he's not even a very effective landlord. He, you know, he sends his servants, and he just doesn't seem to learn. He sends, he sends servants, and he sends more servants. Then he thinks, oh, well, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. Who in the right mind would, would make that assumption? You know? So it's, it's, uh, it's not a very good image for God. And, of course, in the end of the day, the, la- the assumption is the landlord is going to kill these people and take the vineyard and give it to others who will give him what he demanded. And so, you know, that's, if we, if we push that in, um, typical interpretation to its logical limit, it doesn't work well as, good, as theology. Um, right, right. So what I, what I want to do is I want to look at it more in light of Jesus' teachings. And, and when you see that, you see that there's more of an ironic edge, I think. You know, we're all familiar with the fact that Jesus interpreted the law based on the two great commandments, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we all understand that. But most of us aren't aware that in Leviticus 19.18, that's in the context, that command to love your neighbor as yourself is in the context of a prohibition of revenge. And... The, the verse actually reads, um, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so I think Jesus knew his Bible well enough to know that, and it, would, it makes it awkward to interpret the parable in a sense that God is this landloader who's essentially taking revenge. I think that's a brilliant interpretation, very and, and and a very astute one. And I like how it, it's really steeped in how I think people during Jesus's time might have understood that. Right, that's the idea. Um, and and they would have heard that Leviticus come through that. I think as well, mm-hmm. um, which is really really an interesting one that we've pulled away from that. Mm-hmm. You know that we've kind of come to something completely off um, off track. And uh, I think I want to dig into a little bit. You know, as I'm thinking about. Jesus and Jesus's time. I mean, why has there been this tendency to move this? What to, to view God in terms of judgment? What is there a is there a shift in a in a theological tradition that's 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 caused this lead that we want to say? Well, but sometimes God is a ju- God of judgment. I mean, that seems to be the con- a lot of the contemporary view, and it, it, I'm not sure why that has emerged. Well, I mean, there is a verse, you know that that. God is a jealous God, and, and uh, you know, don't take revenge because, you know, God will take revenge, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible. And so um, we just, we sort of snatch on that, and we, we make that the main thing. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know why in the history of interpretation that became so prominent. But, um, the, you know, God has been seen as a vengeful God throughout history. And, uh, you know, if you don't, 
If you don't do just the right thing, you better watch out because God's going to zap you. Because God's, you know, we, we say God is love, and we believe God's love never fails. But then we also have this little dark side of that that, well, except when God is vengeful, you know, and that, that doesn't really work for me in terms of theological consistency. It doesn't at all. And, and uh, you know, one of the main things is, is as, as Presbyterians, is always looking at the, at the Scripture with the law of love as being a kind of our, our yes. number one. We yes. talked about that last week, I think. Yeah. And yet this one, for some reason, it slips aside and people use it to argue anything yes. different. That's um, right. That's right. Well, and, you know, um, part of it is I think we, if we just look at Jesus' teachings, you know, Jesus presents God as a God who is kind and generous toward the just and the unjust alike. That's Matthew 5, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and you know, if we read the parable in the traditional way, it's almost like we're saying, you know, Jesus teaches us not to take revenge, but... God's going to take revenge, which again, that comes back to that inconsistency. Um, I think Jesus is trying to push the people of his day beyond the typical, very shallow, in my opinion, understanding of God as a vengeful God. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the best theological statements I think I've understood about that is that when you look at God's judgment and God's grace and you try to make sense of them, God's judgment is always an expression of God's love. And, and the, the intention is Absolutely. always to bring, in my opinion, the intention is always to bring back those who are wayward. Even in the book of Revelation, the, the, all the terrible things that are poured out, there's this, there are these interludes where the book says, despite all this, the people of the earth did not repent. And it's make, it makes it, I think it gives the assumption, or at least it sneaks it in there, that the purpose of this is that God's trying to get the people of the earth to repent. He's not just unleashing right. his wrath on these wicked creatures, you know. He's right. the the point is is to bring them back to God. That's God's love, uh, and so even judgment, so to speak, is a, is an expression of God's love. One of the things um, that I was thinking also about this is when you when you read this, and maybe when people heard it, who did they identify with when they when they read it? I mean, did they identify with those? wicked tenants or did they identify or, or maybe when we read it today um you know when i when i read it i guess for the first time i'm thinking of oh gosh you know um i wouldn't be one of those wicked tenants i i would know better i wouldn't treat i wouldn't treat people like that so maybe there's something in maybe there's something in that i don't know we do we do i think we tend to we tend to side with the good guys in in everything we read in the Bible. You know, we tend to make that assumption. And um, I think in Jesus' day, it would have depended on your situation in life. I think in Jesus' day, the, the religious leaders who typically were a, an upper class in Jewish society, they were landowners, they were the absentee landlords, they would have, some of the people Jesus, that, that were that some of the religious leaders that were hearing this parable may very well have been had this may very well have had this very situation, you know, where they were absentee landlords, and and you know their tenants were were fed up with uh, sort of being taken to the cleaners, and um, on the other hand, if you were in the crowd, you might have been one of these tenant workers, one of these tenant farmers, you might have been taken advantage of by 
an absentee landlord. And they might have, have I think they might have heard it from the perspective of the, of the tenant farmers. So I, I propose a different reading. Uh, to me, this, to, to me, one that is more consistent with Jesus' right. situation. Right. I propose that Jesus tells a story about an ab- absentee landlord who follows the standard customs regarding tenant farmers, customs which were incredibly unfair. Essentially, uh, a, a landlord like this would take such a large cut of the profit as to leave the farmers, who are the ones actually working the land, uh, with barely enough to keep their families alive. And as a result, the tenants rise up and determine to overthrow their tyrant of a landlord. And in response, he sends an army and wipes them out. That's the way the world works. And I think this is the ironic edge in some of these parables that we're looking at in, Matthew, in this mm-hmm. section of Matthew's Gospel. The things that happen in there, that's the way the world works. Mm-hmm. You do unto others as they have done unto you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the way the kingdom is you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in case we miss the connection, Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. And so, you know, the, the, the kingdom's principle is not revenge, but rather it's not an eye for an eye, but rather exactly. it's, it's you forgive as you have been forgiven. You, you, show, you show mercy as you have been shown mercy. And I think Jesus is pushing all of them in that direction. I I love that. And it fits within our context of the kingdom, which we've been dealing with for the past couple weeks now, um, and what that how that is remarkably different than what we had before. That this is Jesus's kingdom, and that this is Christ God's kingdom, and that this is different. The rules are different. And I would even say it's different from the way things still work. Oh, I agree. (laughs) Because it's still the way of the world, right? Still the way of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's one part of the reason why I'm not willing to to give up on on the word kingdom. I'm not willing uh. to take the G out um, because um, this has to do. I mean, there is a kingdom here, but this has to do with more than a kingdom. It has to do with God's standard of justice yep. being being implemented in the larger society and um, even beyond that. We're back, um, and I'm going to uh, ask Christy to share some insights about how the reformers looked at this parable. And so, Christy, my first question is: um, In what ways did the reformers embrace the image of a vengeful God that some have read into this parable? Sure, I, I think our assumption is that the reformers kind of had this image of a, a vengeful God, and that really is not accurate to their background. In fact, at least our mainstream reformers, Luther and Calvin, really saw a God of love. And if, if you're familiar with Luther, um, Lutherology at all, you're going to see that his image had this big heart in the middle of it, God of love. Um, and in fact, his whole, his whole kind of spiritual struggle and, and, and walk had to do with this God of judgment and always feeling like he could never be good enough. And no matter what he did and he was always in a state of sin, and that's really helped him then as he dug into the scriptures understand this God of, of love and grace. So justification by faith 
uh, comes out of his understanding of God as a God of love and grace. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that really, really forms the backbone of their theology. And it seems to me later people reading them are reading it from a view that of, of a God of, of uh, maybe a, a different kind of God. And so they misread even how, where the reformers are coming from. Mm. For example, ideas of predestination or double predestination in case of Calvin. They're coming and they're reading that from a more modern viewpoint, a more idea of skepticism rather than in this was all steeped in this God of love, which we can talk about later. Um, so understanding this parable in particular within the construct of this vengeful God is not really how they read it, which hmm. I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Our expectation is. Well, you'd think that the, that, the, that the traditional interpretation for us would have gone back to them. And it does not necessarily. It may go back further, and I think it comes out later as we get as we get later into the modern era, as we get in this era of skepticism, we start to... And I think it goes along with the concepts of the two God constructs that we get talking mm. about. That's not part of um, the Reformers either, and particularly for Calvin, was this whole idea of this one God, this one um, promise of God from the beginning of time to the present, um, <clears throat> and that God is working in and through the people all the way. So uh, it, it, it's, it, it really is different than I think our assumptions are or even how people have um, gone back and read the Reformers. So how did they read this parable? Yeah. So I have Calvin's commentaries on this, which frankly are all over the place, which is really, <laughs> really, really interesting. Um, he sees, though... The allegory that we had assumed earlier is a little different for Calvin. Now, Calvin, as we talked about before, is kind of a, he tries to stay away from allegory, at least to the extent that our medieval folks did. Um, he's a light on it. So he tends to see instead of Israel as being the vineyard, he sees the church uh, as being the vineyard. Yeah. Um, and so he doesn't make that that kind of differentiation between the Jews and then the Christians later on, but rather all the people of God in that I vineyard. See. So he has this allegory, but it's a little it's a little different space. That is different, mm-hmm. yeah. And so in his take in is on it, instead of the judgment piece, is that everybody are sinners. They're all sinners. <laughs> <laughs> They're all wicked. <laughs> so everybody's wicked in everybody's the parable. Everybody's wicked. And that really, really fits with Calvin's idea that yeah. we, we simply need to live into the grace of God and that we are that what we expect God to do at the end. And as he said, he leaves us kind of unfinished. And we see how the uh, we see how the the response by maybe the Jewish leaders is to this. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. but Calvin says we don't actually know what happened in in ultimately in this, mm. um, suggesting that we we aren't in control of the world that God is, and that God can take what is this really really big mess and turn it then into um, a very fruitful world. That this. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting. Oh, that's a very optimistic reading of, very of this optimistic. passage. Yeah. yeah, especially even re- relating to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. Now, as I say that, <laughs> he is all over the place. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't hesitate to take time to also blame the wicked tenants on the papists. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Which you would expect, right? Would you expect? It's right there. So he does take. <laughs> he does put that in there as well. Oh yeah. But I, I ultimately I thought it was a very positive reading, which, mm. um, which I think is different than people assume. I, I, 
And yeah, I would. I'm surprised. I would not have thought that that Calvin would read it that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets. I mean, the the language he uses towards the end of this is really, is really quite beautiful. Um, well, you know, and one of the things that that and, and while you're looking for that, one of yeah. the things that that at, uh, some of my other Calvin scholar friends have pointed out is that the Calvin of the commentaries is a bit different from the Calvin of the Institutes. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read this to you. He said, uh, let us also learn that it is impossible, but that the rage of ungodly man will be more and more inflamed by threatenings. For as God seals his word on our hearts, so also it is a hot iron to wound bad consciences in consequence of which their ungodliness is more inflamed. We ought therefore to pray that he would subdue us to voluntary fear, lest the mere knowledge of his vengeance should exasperate us the more. When they are restrained solely by the dread of the people from laying on their hands on Christ, let us learn that God has laid a bridle on them, from which also arises a very delightful consolation to believers, when they learn that God protects them and constantly enables them to escape from the jaws of death. Wow. So... It's this sense of God's in charge. Wow. Providence of... Well, and, and also God is working toward a good end. I don't think that most people who read this, this passage would, would see that for the Jewish leaders in, in question. No, I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. Um, and, of course, and I, I looked at Calvin here, and I, I, think it, I think one of the big things for where evil is comes from for the reformers is kind of central and you have to remember they come out of this medieval tradition where evil is an active satan figure mm-hmm. um and that's 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 the space of that evil um and Ka- luther tends to see uh, it in a space of a, a kind of a two kingdom concept where there's this godly kingdom, and you know, if we had that, we wouldn't need the secular kingdom. And the secular kingdom is, is also ordained by God, and yet it's a space that requires types of rules and laws for things because there's people in there. And again, this is this double predestination concept that even develops in Luther um, that there's people that simply simply are not um, are not responding to God. Yeah. So, so did the reformers? sense any tension between Matthew's interpretation and Jesus' um, teachings? Well, let me tell you what how Calvin approached this. I mean, he did not pull apart. He actually took um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and his commentary is on right. all of them. Right. So the commentary right. is all, all, all condensed. So, so it's he more saw of a synopsis one, of the Gospels. Yeah. yeah, he saw this as one parable. And he points out some of the differences, but in his mind it's, but this is one message I from see. Jesus. I see. Now, the next level of critical separation between Jesus' idea and the gospelers, he's not he's yeah, not in that space. Yeah. That's no, it sounds like he doesn't even have 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 uh, or doesn't want an awareness of the the specific uh, emphases of each gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not so much. He'll pull yeah. them out, and then he says, "But I th- I see this as one as one bigger picture of of God." Um, working as, 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 as scripture coming to us is, um, and one bigger, uh, message. Sounds like he's Hopefully. doing, he's doing, um, a, a commentary on Jesus, not so much a commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That would be, I think his argument. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, did, I mean, obviously the reformers had, uh, an edgy relationship with the papists and, and, 
and you know they didn't have any I, I guess they saw them as unredeemable but how did how did the, I mean did the reformers have a concept of a god of vengeance at all that we talked about earlier um not so much as God. That's not who God is, mm. God's fundamental identity. Um, but being separated from God, I mean, uh, that, absolutely. Those who are separated from God face judgment and even vengeance. Yeah. Wrath. Yeah. 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 Um, but there's, there's always that hope that there, I think there's that hope that, that everyone can be, could be part of that. But so if you are the confidence part of that and the part of that that's supposed to be nice, if if you have faith and and you are called to be in the church and that you you should be confident in your salvation. There's mm. no concern about that. Um, and I think I think it I think it draws away from kind of our skepticism today of this wondering, am I saved? Am I saved? And not that people didn't go through that, but there was this this confidence that that God's working in those who are who are who are called into that space. Mm. Mm. It's interesting because I think um, I think the idea of a vengeful God is one that haunts uh, Christians as well as anybody else. Uh, I think maybe others have totally rejected religion because of that, you know, and so they don't. Others may not necessarily think much about that, but I think especially Christians uh, may have a challenge with um, with the idea of a vengeful God. They it's it's like in the back of their mind, you know, that we believe God's a God of love, but if I cross a line. You know, I might get zapped. Yeah, well, then that's, of course, what the, is the difference between, you know, what you're doing. I mean, it almost has a works thing. If I work to do evil, then I'm going to be, right. I'm going to be. And, and their emphasis is so much on the sovereignty of God. It's mm. so much on that, you know, God's divine action and God's redemptive mission that they are, they are just certain of God's working for Perseverance good. of the saints. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> That said, they are working against the Roman Catholic Church, which then they're working on that that sin and salvation cycle mm-hmm. that's going on. So that's absolutely coming from a different tradition, and they're mm-hmm. they're fighting against each other. Yeah. So, and to assume people have some kind of pure <laughs> Lutheran identity, uh, you know, yeah. they're still they're, they're still impacted by stuff that came from another time or from without, and and you know how today we can preach something in here and we think we're very very clear about the theology and what do we hear from pop culture coming from the outside how did that how did that even come into their minds how did they even get that understanding that's certainly not what came from our pulpit sure Hi, everybody. We are back, and we're going to start talking about how this parable might relate to our, our some of our everyday situations. And Alan had some good insight he's going to lead us off with. Thanks, Christy. So, um, yeah, I, was, I, had a, I encountered a, a story um, by a Catholic theologian named Paul Nitter in one of his books. He talked about how he was active with some folks uh, going to Central America to try to intervene in some of the violence that was happening there. And someone counseled him and said, you know, make sure to uh, examine your own heart because if you're going down there with anger toward the perpetrators of the violence, you're just going to make matters worse. You have to go down there, and the only way you're going to accomplish something good is if you're going down there in a spirit of love. And, you know, I think about our situation today, you know, of um, 
we we are very much um, in in tune, I think, with addressing um, structural racism, systemic injustice, um, um, sexism that has been embedded in our culture for forever, it seems, um, systemic poverty, those kinds of things. We are very much committed to addressing those. But I wonder what values, what, what drives that sense of activism for us? What do you think about that? I think that's a really good observation. And as I get up every morning and I, and I take a self-assessment, how often do I wake up with anger about something? And um, how often do I, do, I usually then go to scripture and, and do my the Bible reading and it, it kind of helps set me back onto God's call on my life. But I think most of us are in that space. And I think our polemic out there that's coming from our media is so angry that it's it's easy to get lost there instead of instead of really um, follow that call that God had. So I think that's absolutely right. We aren't going to be able to fall into God's justice until we are fully living into God's love. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would agree. I mean, we live in a time of extreme polarization. It's awfully hard not to get pulled into one camp or another. And I don't think Jesus would be pulled into a camp. I think Jesus would be the one who is reaching out to both camps with God's love. And and that's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for me personally, because I have my own deeply held convictions and my own strong feelings. And there's some people out there who just flaunt them blatantly and it pushes my buttons and it's easy for me to get angry. It does. Well, and <laughs> me too. And it reminds me, you know, of our parable today of what our normal kind of human response is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really, really plays into this is what you do as human beings. And, and Jesus is called for something very different. Yeah. Um, Jesus is calling for a world of forgiveness yeah. and a, a, a one of love and a one of second chances. And that's cool. And yet that's really hard for us. I mean, that's, and that's fitting into Calvin is, and that's where we're all sinners as we come into this. Well, and I think about the parable of the prodigal son, because the father in the loving father reaches out to the prodigal, but also reaches out to the elder son, you know, and I think we have a challenge we see ourselves as the prodigal, right? And, and oh, yes. thank you, Lord, for your mercy. But there are some people in all of our worlds whom we would sort of, it, maybe not overtly or explicitly, but sort of unconsciously if, if, or maybe just silently, we would exclude them from grace. We would just say, these people are too mean, they're too angry, they're too whatever to, to be able to receive God's grace. Absolutely. <laughs> Good observation. And how often do we, do we put ourselves in that space of judgment? Um, and, uh, I, th I think that's not our space, yeah. right? And, 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 but that's really hard. That's really hard to be in. Um, because it, it seems like if we go back to earlier ideas, it seems like, oh, well, if we can see because of their faithfulness, who's saved, then we can obviously see who's not saved, which is not the idea of those doctrines at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. It certainly is a space for us to judge. Sure. And we don't get it. We don't get to do that. And that's how this has emerged. And it emerged that way, obviously, in the 17th century, um, that we that we could start judging 
people. Yeah, I love I love Calvin's concept of sovereignty and 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 how he made that into sort of an optimistic approach that God's not finished with anyone yet and and that that God can still work in anyone's life. Boy, can we underline that? Anyone? Anyone. 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 And and for me, again, that's another reason why I'm not willing to surrender the G in kingdom of God because because yes, it the kingdom creates a kingdom among those of us who are like-minded, but it also reaches out to those who are outside the boundaries it's, of that kingdom that we would we would understand mm-hmm. as such. It includes those who are attacking those of us who who see Good ourselves point. as a part of that kingdom, and even those who are pressing and and creating systemic injustice and and structural racism, even those, the kingdom of God, in my view, reaches out to them. And it's sort of like Calvin's view of, of God's sovereignty. Exactly. Oh, you know, and I was thinking on the other as, as we're thinking about s- systems, and we're we're looking out at at those stuck in those systems, and sometimes those folks are behaving in ways, sometimes the systems have led them behave in unacceptable ways um, for whatever reason. You know, if, if you have been a child of, of, of abuse, maybe sexual abuse or physical abuse, and we know that that person is more and more inclined to, to commit that kind of abuse, um, hurt their own families in the same way, and it just goes over and over and over and over. And so it's easy for us to point our finger and saying, you're the bad one. You've done all this bad stuff without looking at that, that broader system, which is part of that whole, everybody is a sinner. Everybody's part of this piece. And I think it does remind us that that person is just as much a victim as they are perpetrator. And I agree. We forget that, you know, we have certain pariahs in our culture today, people whose names we could mention who would just be, we would be disgusted at what they did. But we forget the broader picture of what happened in that person's life as a young child that may have may have stamped their souls and their hearts in a way that defined this path for them. Now, you know, I, I, I would be the first one to say we all have responsibility for our actions, but you know, we have to look at the big picture as well. And I think I think when we can look at that bigger picture, that opens the door for us to take a more compassionate view and to and to look at it more from the standpoint of the law of love, as you mentioned. You know, God loves everyone, even the pariahs in our culture. Um, Jesus died for all of us, even those whose names disgust us because of what they've done and what an, and and thinking of if we come to the table with that and if we come to the table how often do i see even even children who are misbehaving and they think they decide they're bad and this is this is current you know they decide they're bad kids or bad people they, they start labeled. to internalize that and yep. they internalize i can't do anything nobody will love me for what I am. And it, it just turns itself on its head. And to think of if the world shifts and we start to go out into the world with that love towards others and give those people a chance. And how, how, how can that change? And of course, you know, this fits right into how do we change the systems to reflect that? And I think it's more than just physical changes are part of it, but I also think it's in the internal shifts yeah. of, of we have to have a change of heart. Yeah, yeah, we have to have a change of heart. We all have to have a change of heart. And I, you know, I am very much in support of some of the activism that we're engaged in. 
um, because I think it's important. You know, we as a democratic society, we get to enact systemic changes. We get to call for systemic changes. But, um, uh, you know, going back to where we started, I think we have to have a change of heart ourselves. We have to, we can acknowledge our anger and we can feel our anger, but we, we need to act out of love, I think, if we want to see, truly see right. the end of injustice, truly see structural racism um, brought to an end, you know, systemic poverty, um, sexism that has been embedded, abusive behaviors, those kinds of things. If we want to truly act redemptively in this world, we have to act out of the love that Jesus taught us to live. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I think that um, gives us a, an interesting and an appropriate way to consider this parable within the, uh, within the broad, broad, broad teachings of Jesus. And I think it's, I think it's really cool. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.